Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up the one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called it from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. You may be seated. Thank you, Jay, for reading God's Word. Listen to me in silence. That's how this passage starts. God is getting the attention 
of his people. When you think about a time that you might have been anxious or afraid, whether it's when you were a child or even as an adult, or maybe as you're engaging with someone who is afraid, or th- whether it's a child or an adult, you can think about the frenzy that they can get worked up with, right? And they're afraid about something, and you just want to say, listen, 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 I've got, you have some truth that's going to help calm them down. That's what God's doing in this text. He knows his people are discouraged and afraid. They've been removed from their homeland. They were being oppressed by another government. They were experienced hardship, and they were afraid of what was coming next. They'd even wondered if God was present, as we talked about last week. And we, in this day, can see the circumstances that we find ourselves, whether it's banks failing or governments threatening war or whatever it may be, rational fears or even irrational fears. The Bible expects that we are going to be afraid. In the Bible, you hear the phrase, fear not, 33 times. So there's an expectation that we are going to be afraid. So the question isn't, are we going to be afraid? The question is, what are we going to do when we are afraid? Where are we going to direct our attention? What are we going to do to prepare our hearts and our minds for those times when, when fear is going to come? Because there's a promise for us as Christians that hardship is going to come because we're followers of Christ, what are we going to do when those hard things come our way? Well, the answer is not seven strategies to deal with your fear. The answer is found, again, back in chapter 40, where the beginning of this discourse that's happening from Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 9, behold your God, behold your God. So we beheld our God last week. We're going to continue that this week. And for the number of weeks as we're in Isaiah, we're going to behold our God because what we need is not something new. We need something true. We don't need something new. We need something true. And that truth is that God is absolutely amazing. There's so many amazing things about God that we should know his holiness. We should be amazed at who he is, and so when God says, listen, he's not there to lecture us with something boring, because I, I get that maybe, maybe when you've had a teacher or your parent, and they say, listen, you're just, your eyes glaze over, but when God says, listen, he's got something to share with you that's going to minister to your soul, and the first thing he does is point us again to who he is that he is in control of all things in all times. He's not a God who's uninvolved in the universe. That's something that would be purported by secularism, like there is no God and you're really not significant in any way. But our God is is involved in the events of history. Look at verses 2 and 3. Who stood up from the east, whom victory meets at every step, 
He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Our God is over all the nations. He's providentially over all the things that are happening that we see here. And he's involved. He's not involved at a distance like he's got some remote control just figuring it out. No, he's in it because it says he stirred. He stirred. He's involved. And in fact, this phrase, who stirred up one from the east, is really a prophecy of something that's going to come. God's working. There's going to come a day where someone's going to have victory at every step. So the people of God, they're in a place where they're not in their homeland. They're completely discouraged. And God's saying, I'm going to be doing something. Now, we know from history and from God's word that that he established Cyrus, who would liberate God's people and send them back to their homeland. They didn't know that at this time, but that's what God was going to do. It's something that absolutely amazing, something they thought could never happen and was history. They thought they'd been forgotten, but God is working. God is working in the events of history. God's working in the events right now. Though circumstances in the world seem to come out of nowhere for us, our God is using them. They are actually serving our God's purposes. Whether it's their, the victories that we see or the defeats that we see, they're serving God's purposes. They are being orchestrated by his invisible hand. We can't always see him. He's invisible. I mean, when you look at the text, it says he pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Really, that's just giving giving insight to us that you don't always see his footprints. You don't see God. Like he, he does stuff and he doesn't, he's moving so fast, his feet don't even hit the ground. But though we may not see his footprints, we don't see his presence, we can see his fingerprints. We can see him working. That's why we need friends to remind us that God's working in our life because they point out places that we just don't see. We're like, yeah, I don't know if God's working. Oh, yeah, God's working. Sat down with a couple this week, just, hey, just thanking God for his work in their life, pointing out so many things. God's working. He's not only working in your life, he's working over nations. And he's also over all of time. We even talked about that last week, his eternity. Look back at verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Let's slow down. Look at your Bibles again. Just ponder that truth. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Whenever I go to do something new, I want to find someone who knows what they're doing. Our God was around before it all began. He was there at the very beginning. And also when I'm doing a project, I want, I want someone to be there with me. Uh, because as much as I can learn ahead of time, as much as YouTube is helpful, my wife appreciates when someone's right there with me. 
because it gets done and it gets done right. He's going to be there till the end. To the end of all things. He's there at the beginning. He's there to the end. Again, he's existing in all parts of time. He's existing in the past. He's existing in the present. He's existing in the future. We need to remember that because oftentimes we are afraid because we look into the future and we see all kinds of things unfolding and the thing that we're not seeing is God. The thing that's going to help us is not that we look into the future and we see how it's going to turn out. No, we look into the future and the only thing we need to know is that God is there in the future. He is in all time and he's over all time. He's the only constant in all of history. Nations rise and fall. People are born, people die. God. That's our God. And he's all powerful. And the nations see that. If we look at verse 5, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and they come. Everyone experiences fear. Whether you see it or not, everyone experiences fear. The world answers that fear by, by building idols, by trying to think through different things, but they experience fear. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. They believe in anything. And it's true. When people lose their, their sense of God, what do they do? They join together and construct their own meetings about things. You know, what does this mean? What does this do? Their own myths. Uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that they do. And now you may not be carving images, as is kind of described here in verses 6 and 7. Hey, let's be strong. Let's get a craftsman here together to strengthen us. Let's build something. You don't maybe have an image that you have sitting on your mantle or on your shelf at home. But what in your life are you looking to for peace and for hope? What are you looking to for peace and for hope? Is it your income or your 401k? Is it a career or your education? Is it a relationship? relationship you want to be in that you think is going to bring the peace and the joy that you want, or the relationship you are in that's not delivering in the way that you think it should deliver, whether it's your spouse or friendship. If you are fearful, it may be because you are relying on idols. It's a question that's worth asking. What is it that I'm placing my hope in? Now, the Lord doesn't want you to stay there. He doesn't want you to be kind of overtly focusing on that because what he wants us to do is be aware of him. He wants to say those idols, they're just not going to deliver. The stuff of this earth just isn't going to deliver and remove the fear that you're longing to be removed. Because we can build those things, construct them, and find ourselves constantly afraid or we can trust in the mighty fortress that is our God and rest in his arms. Because he makes 
He makes us aware of himself, but he also says to us to give us confidence. He says, fear not, in verse 10. But back in 8, he says, but you, O Israel, my servant. He's giving confidence to his people when they're afraid. He's He's saying things in these, in these verses. I'm just going to read verses 8 to 10 again. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I look from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's giving assurance. He's saying, I want you to know you can expect my presence. I want you to know you can expect my strength. I want you to know you can expect my help. I'm going to give you confidence when you're afraid. And he gives us assurances. And I'm just going to pick out five assurances that he gives us in this text. And the first one is this, that we're chosen. Look at your Bibles at verse 8. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. That word servant there. We often can think about maybe someone who's an indentured servant or slavery and how we think about that maybe in the last four or five hundred years in our nation's history. But the original hearers would have understood it differently. They would have understood a servant who, yes, might have been at the bottom of the food chain, as it were, or at the bottom of social status. But there was a protection that was there when you were a servant in this day. When you were exposed to maybe hurt or affliction from someone outside the household, that individual who afflicted you would have to answer to the head of the household. They would have to answer to the owner. So there was protection. There was safety. The servants would find joy at at being in the place that they were at because they knew that there was protection and God is speaking that way and he has chosen you to be in his family. If you've trusted in Christ, he has leaned into you and we'll talk more about that when we get into the book of Ephesians after Easter. But he's saying, my friend. He's not distancing himself. He's speaking words of intimacy I found you not because you come to the table with something amazing and special. No, I've chosen you because I'm merciful and loving and kind and I want you close to me. So dispel those thoughts from the enemy that, that say, yeah, God, God doesn't want me. God doesn't want to use me. No, God is coming near for he has made the effort and taken the step towards you. And our God promises to strengthen us and to sustain us. You're my servant. Uh, I've chosen you. You're not cast off. And then this verse that you may have memorized, not because you took the time to memorize it, but because you've heard it so many different times 
Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There it is. Again, fear not. We'll hear it again and again. Fear not, for I am with you. His presence is what brings peace. He is present. All that we learned about him, not just in this text, but we learned about him the last two weeks, all of that is true. That is present because he says, I am with you. Be not dismayed. That word dismayed kind of gives you the flavor of when a kid finds themselves at the park or in a store and they can't see their parent, what do they do? They're like frantically looking, like where? 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 I'm looking and there's fear on their face, like what's going on? But as soon as they, as they lock their eyes on their parent, it's like, ah. They start beeline to their parent. As soon as they get to their parent, they, they're calm. And that's what God wants us to do. Be not dismayed. I'm with you. I am your God. I'm committed to you. He says, I am your God. So he's present and he's committed. I will strengthen you. It's a promise. He builds on it. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's going to uphold us. The picture there is one, if you you leave your finger there and flip back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 17, verses 11 and 12. So the context here is Israel is fighting Amalek and uh, we have, uh, you know, they're fighting and Joshua is leading the charge and it says here in verse 11, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So, so Moses standing up on a hill and when, he, when his hands are up, the people of God are winning and if he puts his hands down, they start to lose. Talk about pressure. And you can imagine, you can only hold your hands up so long. We're not going to do that here right now. But you can only hold them up so long. And this is what happened. It says, but Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So the upholding here, that's the picture. Like, God, God's working. There's something that you have to do. And, and what God is calling you to, what God is calling to in your life, the things he's called you to, the people he's called you to reach for Christ, the responsibilities you have as a mother or a father or a spouse or a worker, the various things God called us to do, they can feel so overwhelming. And like, my arms are up and they feel like they are go- going to get weak. And he promises, no. I am going to uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's personal. He's going to accomplish his promises in your life. He's going to accomplish his purpose in your life because he's, he's involved. 
So our God promises to strengthen us and to sustain us. And then we see that, that when we are opposed, our God is going to help us. Look at verses 11 and 12. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Think of this picture. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you won't find them. You shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Think of that picture as nothing at all. The opposition that you will experience for being a Christian or the opposition that you may experience for doing what is right. To God, that opposition is, is it's like it's not even there. Because that how, is how great our God is. And he is with us. He's going to help us. Because he says, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. Think of that image. Just, I'm with you. I'm holding your hand through it. We use that phrase when we're helping somebody. We don't actually hold their hand. I'm going to hold your hand through it. God literally is going to do that. Hold your hand through the hard that you're walking through. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I'm the one who helps you. As we look, we have to remember, okay, we're, we're holding a hand, we're kind of looking around, we're like, oh, this is, but wait, wait. The one who's holding our hand is getting our attention saying, listen, I'm the one who helps you. When you hear my voice, remember, I am the one who helps you. So when we encounter things like Philippians 1, 28 and 29, these things resonate with us because it says, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So we are going to suffer for his sake. There are going to be challenges. There is going to be opposition. But he says, do not be afraid. I am going to help you. I am going to help you. Now, oftentimes, we just want to stop there. Like, okay, we just, okay, God's going to help me. <sighs> okay. But he does more than just put us in a place of peace. He then takes the step and uses us in our weakness. So the removal of fear isn't just so that life can be less stressful for us. The removal of fear is so that we will trust him as we take steps to be obedient to his will in our lives because our God is going to use us in our weakness. Even as Jay read verse 14, he said, fear not, you worm Jacob. He read it just perfectly because when he reads it, when he read it, I was like, man, that just feels awkward. God just called me a worm. 
Well, it's, a, it's not derogatory. He's not doing it to just stick it to us. He's exposing the reality that we are weak apart from him. We don't really bring anything to the table to accomplish anything. We are weak, and he's declaring that. And we don't like weakness. We don't. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't like weakness. I don't wake up and go, man, I just can't wait to be weak today. But weakness is the way of the Christian. We learn from 2 Corinthians 11.30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Or 2 Corinthians 12.9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Weakness, and we could go verse after verse after verse in the New Testament talking about weakness. Weakness is something that we are to embrace because we rightly see ourselves But when we rightly see ourselves, we're not supposed to say just rightly see ourselves. We're supposed to rightly see our God. And he talks about himself. And the second half of this verse is not just you, worm. That's not just our weakness. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The Redeemer is the one that takes upon himself the responsibility not only for his family, but also for his descendants. When you think about the story of Ruth, right, in the story of Ruth, if you remember, uh, her husband dies, brother-in-law dies, father-in-law dies, she comes back into her land with Naomi, her mother-in-law refers to herself as being bitter, that's kind of a rough spot to be, just call me bitter, call me Mara is what she says, and that's the the state that she's in. There's kind of no hope for her, and who is going to be the redeemer? Who's going to take care of this one? And the person who's supposed to take care of this one says, no, I'm not going to do that, but there's one who does, and his name is Boaz. And Boaz isn't going to benefit from doing that. He's actually going to give the honor to the one who's died by being the redeemer, but he lays it down, and he becomes the redeemer he marries Ruth, and God then honors him by being in the line that leads to the ultimate Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who came and took our place. He's provided for us. He's brought us into his family. Jesus saw us in our weakness and took upon himself the responsibility that was ours, bearing our sin. That is why we start our identity statement with we are a redeemed family who loves God and loves others because we want to point to the work that he has done. Before we do anything, we want to point to the fact of what he has done because the cross is the place that ultimately destroys worldly power. The cross is the place that declares that weakness is power, that loss is gain, and that servanthood is greatness, because God is working in us in our weakness. 
because he, he makes us into a threshing, threshing sledge. It says, behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. And I know all of you are like, oh, I know, I know exactly what that is. Thresh, I, I totally get that. I didn't get it at all. I was like, what is a threshing sledge? So I got a picture for you. This is what a threshing sledge is. So this, this individual is on the threshing sledge. I'll kind of read you the, the description of this. It's a heavy wooden platform fitted underneath with sharp stones and pieces of cutting metal that was dragged over a crop to chop the straw in preparation for winnowing as they would come and they would separate the good and the bad. And, uh, and this sledge is new, which means it's in its prime condition. This sledge is sharp, meaning it's ready for the task. This sledge is capable of not just leveling like grain like this, the sledge that, that God is talking about is one that, that moves mountains and crushes them. You shall make the hills like chaff. We're called to take the message of the gospel. As we talked about the Lord making straight the path, prepare the way of the Lord in, in chapter 40, you know, though valleys being raised, the hills being taken down, ultimately that's fulfilled in Christ. Christ is going to make the way straight, and we are called to bring the message of the gospel to those who desperately need to hear the message, that need to be reconciled to God. And to us, oftentimes, that can feel like an overwhelming task. Like, how is that going to be accomplished? God says, I'm going to do it. Got the newest stuff ready to go. In your weakness, I am going to show my strength because it's not political power that's going to win the day, but rather weakness resting in the power of God. Because we have a treasure, friends. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 5, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And it goes on, and he says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So even Paul, the great preacher, knows that his strength comes from the power of the gospel, not from his own. So God wants to use us. God wants to use us in his mission to share the gospel with others. What is God calling you to do? Who is God calling you to reach? Fear is gonna come. It's gonna come because there are things that are happening in our day that are gonna cause us to make choices. Some of us are gonna have to make decisions as we are in employment of others. We may need to choose, may have to choose between Jesus or our job. 
Is that going to generate fear? Yeah, I think so. But God wants us to know, I am with you. You may be faced with something difficult in your life right now. You're just like, I, I just don't seem to have the right words to say. I don't have the strength to do it. God says, I am with you. I'm going to strengthen you. Strengthen you beyond what you could imagine. I'm going to help you to endure. And I'm going to promise that I'm going to help you to endure because I'm going to sustain you. Because as the passage goes on, we see that he makes the promise to sustain. He says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Poor speaks to being crushed under the weight of circumstances. Certainly it can speak to those who don't have financial resources. Poor if you felt crushed under the weight of circumstances, God's speaking to you. Needy speaks to being helpless. Helpless in the hands of your adversaries or future adversaries. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. He's not going to forsake you. He's going to sustain you. And he paints a picture of what that sustenance is going to look like. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. You're like, well, in the midst of that, I don't know if I need a drink. That's not the thing. He's actually painting this wonderful picture as you engage with something that's hard. Because in, the, in this day, when people would go into the wilderness, the thing they needed was water. They had to carry it with them. There was no 7-Eleven. There was no gas station to pull off and get some, uh, a beverage to drink to hydrate yourself. It would have been hot. The journey would have been long. And so water was absolutely essential. And God is saying, the water's going to come. It's not just going to come. I'm not just going to find you a little trickling, you know, trickling stream. No. Open rivers, fountains in the midst of valleys. In the wilderness, a pool of water. That's the picture of his sustaining grace. And then he gives a picture of shelter. I'll put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the, the pine together. These aren't fruit-bearing trees. These are trees that give shade, that grow large to give shade and protection. And he wants to make that crystal clear. The original hearers would have said, Abundance of water, abundance of shade. That's the image that our God gives us of his sustaining grace. Yeah, that's the image that our God gives us of his sustaining grace. So it's not just, oh, fear not, I'll be with you. If I can hold on to his hand tight enough, maybe I'll find this hope. No, it's overwhelming what our God does and his posture towards us. Because as we come, we need endurance. Hebrews tells us, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Friends, you're going to need endurance. I know I know in this room right now there are circumstances that are hard and you're like, I need some endurance right now. 
You're going to need endurance in the future. You don't have to worry about God being there because he's there in the future. We learned that. He is already in the future. You're going to need endurance then. He's going to be there to help you to endure. And the place that you go isn't all of the things. Certainly, we want to be wise. We want to take wise steps. We want to plan. We want to be prudent. But the place we go is Christ. Because Jesus said in John For whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So we first come to Christ in humble repentance to trust in Jesus. If you've not done that, I'd love to talk with you before you leave here today. But he will do a work in us. But the living water, friends, is not just for the day of salvation. It's for us to experience every time where that anxiety comes, when that fear comes, to come because the picture that God has given us is overwhelming of his sustaining grace. Life is exhausting. And we're often dry. And the fears we experience are absolutely real. But when we come to his word, we are beholding our God. That's why it's so important. It's so, such a blessing that we have his word. We were thanking God about that this morning in the prayer meeting, that God has given us his word, that we can come and find refreshment. When we forget, we can come and we can experience Christ afresh. We can experience who God is because when we forget, he reminds us of who he is. We don't just have to be in Isaiah. We could be in the Psalms. We could be in Genesis. We could be somewhere in Revelation. Wherever we find ourselves in, we see God working in the lives of his people. So if you want a place to start, just just take this text. Take this text home and read it and reread it. Maybe go back to chapter 40 and read that slowly. Ponder what's stated there. Because refreshment will come. The antidote for fear comes when we behold our God. When we behold the God who's actively working in the nations and And they answer to him, the one who causes fear in the world because of his greatness, says to us that we're his servant and he's chosen us. He says to us, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for reminding us of who you are. I thank you, Father, that you have slowed us down so that we can hear your voice speak to us. Lord, may the words that I've shared be forgotten and the words that you have spoken to our hearts be remembered and would they carry with us this afternoon and in the week to come and in the months to come as we seek to honor you and to serve you.
We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.